You're listening to the Wisdom Track podcast from the British Association of Anger Management, or BAM for short. This is the February 2021 episode titled The Tyranny of Perfection. We're discussing the topic of shame with BAM founder Mike Fisher, plus therapists Craig Snake Bloomstrand and Chris Cherry, who's also the founder of UOK Doc, the mental health and well-being charity offering support for medical professionals. Now, during March 2021, Mike and Snake will be running a four-part coaching workshop based around shame. It's every Saturday in March from 2.30 till 5pm. And you can find out more about that in the courses section of our website, angermanage.co.uk. Let's jump straight in where Snake is talking about the different types of shame sufferers. And there's people who are shameless, who have very little conscience and very little inclination as to the impact their actions have on others. And the majority of us fall somewhere in the middle. I think one of the most poignant ones for me, uh, many years ago, I was working with him within his early 60s. And he shared that in his upbringing, uh, his father was very hard on him, Uh, told me he was a waste of space, that he'd never amount to anything. A lot of the narrative that he got from his father was very critical and very harsh. And uh, I'm very much abbreviating this, but the man came to realize that he never amounted to anything because he believed his father. He believed he was worthless. He believed that he'd never amount to anything. Therefore, that's exactly what he became. And the bottom line around that was he wasn't out just for self-flagellation. He became who his father described him to be out of love for his father. In a strange, twisted sort of way, He sabotaged his life to live up to his father's expectations, which were real low. Now, another dramatic example of shame, but shows how the reach of shame can cover an entire lifetime. Like I said, this man was in his 60s before getting that awareness and making different choices around finding some self-worth. And in very many ways, a real success story. Um, But I don't know that shame is always a problem to be remedied. Like I mentioned earlier, too, it's been a great gauge for me in terms of my own performance, my own conscience, uh, what I'm willing to take a stand for. Uh, If I feel regret or remorse, I question my choices. So that's a lot to just put on the plate, but I'll stop with that and see that kick it off. Do you want to respond, Chris, or do you want to develop on that? Um, I, I, I was just enjoying listening to you speak, Snake. Um, and and it, 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 one of the other things that I found literally in real time to experience by by coming onto this um, workshop 
was my own sense of what shame would how was I feeling the possibility of shame in the context of coming on to this mm. workshop and just listening to Snake. Snake, you're an incredibly articulate man and you're you're telling the story as well, which makes it a very, you know, it, it's a it's it's a lovely way of sort of listening to the to an issue that's so the the, the very topic of shame, you know, the word itself creates such a visceral reaction. Um, but you're you're talking about it in a way that makes in the way that you described yourself at the beginning, which was about being curious, and you make me curious to sort of explore it. Um, and so, so part of coming into the workshop was what about perfectionism, how I'd want to present myself, how I'd compare myself to the two of you. Um, even talking about this, talking about it in a way that sort of, you know, I'm, I'm able to talk about it articulately and uh, engage people. It, it just, the, the, the thing that came for me was just how shame, it's so pervasive. It, I, I don't think it's something, I think we all experience it and it seems to be part of being human. And so the, the intrinsic value of it, the importance of it, but also understanding why shame exists, what what its purpose is. And then when you were both talking about toxic shame, um, is there different ways in which we experience shame because of the people who, in relationship with us, bring our sense of self around shame? So about understanding, about having a deeper sense of our own experience, the different ways we experience it, and what it becomes for us, whether we go inwards, because shame is about going inwards it's a relationship with ourselves rather than with others although it's been triggered by others or do we go do we then start to attack people um and we can start to bring in characters the obvious one uh donald trump you know which i sense is of profound shame but his reaction was to humiliate bully dominate others to shame others um so that's my initial response to Snake and just generally my thoughts. Thank you. So let me, let me just develop on, on, on the conversation. In our anger management programs, there is a section that we do on shame, but we're, all we do is we just touch on the subject. Um, you know, we're not doing a shame management program, we're doing an anger management program, but I've already said earlier on that most of the people I work with suffer from shame and they're somewhere on the spectrum. So the questions that are often asked is, you know, what is the difference uh, between guilt and shame? Well, guilt is I've made a mistake. Guilt is I've made a mistake and uh, I apologize. Shame is I am a mistake. I'm, I'm the rotten apple in the apple cart. And what's really interesting about shame is that there's shame about shame. So people who suffer from shame are not even aware that they're ashamed. That's the one piece I want to include. The other piece I want to include is if you take the word shame and you split it, you get sh Now, the other part of the word is um, and those of you who speak um, French, I think it's am or ame, is the soul. So what you have is you've got sh the soul, which is essentially silencing of the soul. And if you look at it from the perspective of poisonous pedagogy, which is based on breaking the spirit of the child in order to control them, which is very much a Victorian 
value system. It's kind of been carried down through generations, and here we are talking about the subject, toxic shame, or the title of the presentation is The Tyranny of Perfection. And from my perspective, the issue that I've always had in my own life while journeying through this particular labyrinth, which I would call toxic shame, one of the things I was most terrified of was making mistakes, getting it wrong, because if I did that, I had the potential of being shamed, humiliated, and criticized. So for me, everything I did, every, every, everything about me was about achieving perfection, which is impossible, hence the title called The Tyranny of Perfection. So from, from my own direct experience, I learned from a very, very young age is that the way that I avoid this deep sense of not belonging or feeling un, unlovable um, was to, well, one is um, do whatever I could to not express or show any kind of vulnerability or weakness. I always had a smile on my face. In fact, the memory of myself as a child through parents, uh, relatives, especially aunts and uncles, they always remembered me as a very happy child. However, that wasn't my experience of myself. I was a very depressed child. In fact, the correct term for it is dysthymia. And John Bradshaw talks about low threshold depression. So that's what I suffered from. And I remember very clearly the day that I made the connection that I was suffering from toxic shame. This is a conversation I had with you, Snake, because you were, I think you were leading that particular weekend. Uh, it was, I think it was LT2. And we were doing it in London. And that was the point where I realized what had happened to me was that actually I was suffering from toxic shame. A light went on and all of a sudden my rage, my rage came to the surface. And I remember somebody saying to me that shame is toxic. Sorry, let me take that back. That rage is directly linked to shame. It's directly linked to toxic shame. So basically, shame is essentially frozen rage. I'll leave it there. Yeah, you know, I think it's inter interesting, too, to look at over the years of doing this stuff. I've become real clear that I'm not about fixing anything. I'm not about healing anything. But what's come to the surface is how poorly educated we are as human beings around some of these emotions. And to explore those as individuals in our unique way ends up being a resource for making informed choice rather than a curse that needs to be healed in some way or another. So this exploration of shame is very personal, can be very vulnerable. And at the same time, when someone else tells a story about how they experience shame, I benefit because it adds to the knowledge that I have on shame. And, you know, no one taught us about love. Notice no one taught us about anger. Uh, oftentimes it was modeled in ways that wasn't really healthy. Shame fits in that category as a large emotion 
that most all people have a relationship with one way or another. Uh, the benefit in having large groups of people together to discuss it is we get a much greater education. So uh, there's a stigma attached to shame, particularly toxic shame, that is best diminished. Um, there's no need to feel shame around feeling shame. Um, come to know it. What's it saying? Like so many different emotions, the emotions are there to inform, not necessarily to steer your life, but to inform your life. So I'd like to approach this topic as we're learning, we're educating, we're not fixing a damn thing. There may be healing that comes out of it through that insight. Yes. Don't get me wrong. But the intention is to reveal, not necessarily heal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wrote in the blog that uh, I grew up in a very unusual house. My mother would not tolerate shame. Uh, her mother, my grandmother, uh, unloaded buckets so my mother by the time I came around had had all the shame she was willing to digest and so she put a moratorium on that in her house and I always felt lucky in that there was always a great deal of respect and kindness in the household but regardless of that I created my own shame as I lived my life as I was a young boy and struck out a bat or uh, you know, made some mistake or pushed some limit that was way too far and had regrets. Uh, shame came into my life despite a somewhat cloistered youth where shame was simply not allowed. Uh, it, it, it will find us one way or another or the relationship will be invited into the relationship with shame at some point in life. Do you, do you not feel that it it it's it's a part of the human experience? As, as I was sort of thinking about the workshop, that shame is rooted and it's one of the earliest emotional experiences we can have when we're in relation to people that matter so much to us in their responses or reactions to what we do or don't do. That it's deep in our sort of very early early uh, years, so it remains a very visceral, uh, relevant reference that we use in, in the life that we, that, that we live. Um, mm -hmm. And then I suppose the other bit is how shame is ongoing just culturally. Yeah. There, is the, there is the family, there are parents or a mother or teachers, uh, peoples in positions of authority, we're vulnerable to being shamed by, by a huge number of different people and situations. Um, but also the way uh, the culture now feels very much more about perfectionism and shame um, uh, in all sorts of different ways, socially, culturally, politically, emotionally. Um, it seems to be baked in one way or another to how we know we're who we are. Um, yeah, I would agree, Chris. I think the link in that, too, is to that moral compass. Yeah. Uh, 
shame and the moral compass is linked to uh, our, our sense of uh, uh, awareness or impact on others. Uh, one of the things came up for me while you're talking is uh, one of the ways I see shame manifest amongst clients oftentimes is they keep themselves incredibly small. Uh, lack of confidence or far too sensitive to their impact on others, that they're constantly scrutinizing their own behavior and keeping it small rather than expanding beyond the shame. Uh, we hear it all the time. It's someone does a magnificent piece of art and someone will compliment them and they'll say, oh, it was nothing. It's no big deal to diminish that capacity that we have. Oftentimes it's linked to shame as well. And, you know, false modesty or take responsibility for who you are. Uh, shame in some cases ends up to be an excuse to not be fully who you are. And maybe for good reasons, maybe like the man I talked about earlier, whose father shamed him as a youth. Um, might be the reason, but it doesn't have to be the lifestyle. Uh, so I'm oftentimes questioning when I'm uncertain about taking something on. Is that related to me feeling inadequate or lack of courage or uh, old residual shame stuff around who do you think you are anyway? All of those different things could come into play. But to be able to examine them without judgment and make an informed choice, that's my goal. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes not, but that's the goal for me. Well, one of the things I'm always drawn back to is just literally having these conversations, particularly around shame and humiliation, which is in there, that literally to acknowledge that you feel shame becomes a shaming experience because it's such a, it's just, you know, it just is, it, it, it's so powerful to acknowledge it. So to push back against that by just, us, you, Mike, the people listening, to just be able to talk about it in, by normalizing it, take some of the toxicity out of it. This is what we all experience. And if we know that and if we connect with each other in the knowledge of that, does that in itself start to dilute some of the toxicity of shame? Another part that we've, that we've talked about quite a bit is projection and how projection fits into shame yeah uh, you know I, uh, one of the sayings i heard years ago that's meant a lot to me is you spot it you got it in other words if there's something in another person that irritates me or angers me it's best to take a moment and see if i own if i have that same quality because shame's difficult to carry and it's far easier to pin it to someone else and send them out the door than it is to digest my own. So projection and what we project on others fits into this whole conversation in a huge way too. 
And we all do it. We make judgments. Uh, couldn't orient our lives unless we did make judgments one way or another. Some of them are harsh. Some of them come out of our own psyche. And being somewhat conscious around that or learning that is a critical skill. Um, I'm always looking at people around me as somewhat of a reflection that informs me about my own reactions, my own behaviors. Uh, uh, we're in each other's lives to teach one another, not as a teacher, but by example. Is there anybody that can comment about your opinion on the relationship between shame and pride? Mm. I think that's a good one for Mike. Yeah, I was going to meet you. So there's something really interesting about this particular dynamic that you're talking about, Dr. Z. So let me, let me just take a stab at it. Well, when I look at this idea of pride, I see it falling into the realms of arrogance or ego eccentricity. So that really is the way that we compensate. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is that if we feel a huge level of shame, and if I can include the word low self-esteem, it's quite possible that people who um, are consumed by pride, and, and, and really, you know, pride is a, is a really big word for me because, you know, I can be proud of an achievement but when I think about pride in the way that you're describing it, pride has a lot to do more with, with arrogance and egocentricity. And so I, I don't think I made a description. I, th I think I said a word, and the, and the word pride can go in many ways, depending on the description. Then you need to be more specific. Okay. Um, the, when I was asking the question, the kind of pride that I had in mind was gay pride. Okay, so so the question between what being gay and being shame bound is that Be between the, the the question was about the relationship. What is your opinion about the relationship between shame and pride? And if you want me to be more specific, what is the relationship between shame and gay pride? Well, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to ask somebody who's gay. I'm a heterosexual. So the little I'm aware I, of that, I, and so am I, but, but I just wanted your opinion. The little I know about that is that a, a huge amount of people that I work with who are gay suffer from a huge amount of shame, specifically toxic shame, because of their own history of being shamed and humiliated about their sexuality. So... Um, as far as I'm concerned, that there's a huge amount of defensiveness and, of course, a huge uh, amount of uh, a need to actually protect themselves. But, you know, this is, not, this is not an area that I am even comfortable talking about because it's out of my remit. All I can so say... So back to anger, hey? Okay, I retract the question. Thank you. Okay, but I'll tell you what, it's better for you to put the question up, as I requested earlier on, on the chat box, and then we'll identify questions that are... Will do, will do, will do. Thank you, Mike. But before, before we move on, um, Snake or Chris, would you like to respond to that? Yeah, um, oh, I, I like the question, quite frankly, because um, the link between pride and shame can also be 
an unwillingness to acknowledge achievement in self. So, you know, particularly when you look at sexuality like that, a lifetime spent in shame for being gay and making a declaration of being proud of being gay, claiming that part, decreases that shame to a certain degree. It, it's a measure of claiming, no, this is who I am, and I have pride in that. So I don't think pride necessarily is a caustic thing. It certainly can be in the case of arrogance. It also can be a declaration of independence from shame to say, yes, this is who I am. Um, it's, it's a topic that's very personal to me in that uh, my father was a closeted gay man who came out to me when he was 35 and had lived when I was 35. He'd lived his entire life not owning who he was, feeling it was too risky culturally to live the life that he wanted to live. He got married and had children because he figured that would fix him and basically lived a life uh, of shame. And uh, that's regrettable. Uh, I like to think we've come further than that, that my father would have a very different experience in today's world than he did in the 50s. But regardless, uh, those type of core issues, uh, sexuality, uh, performance, achievement, those are all deeply personal to each of us and can be shame generating as well. So I think uh, there's part of pride that's arrogant and part of pride that is claiming what's rightfully yours can cut either way. Chris, did you want to say something? Uh, just that that was a lovely uh, response, uh, Snake. Um, uh, yes, it, it, it made me think because it's another part of the work that I'm increasingly more engaged with and think needs much more conversation discussion is about neurodiversity, Asperger's and autism generally. So there's sexuality, there's roles, going back to the charity that I'm in, around doctors, their role and perfectionism and vulnerability to shame and so forth. But but also those who are on uh, uh, neurodiverse, uh, and I think much more in a much more nuanced, subtle uh, uh, part of the spectrum, uh, particularly with women, um, where I think there's a lot more uh, vulnerability and a lot more experience of shame around identity and relationship to other people, uh, not just a parent or teacher or so forth, but to everybody. Um, and so that's what I, I feel very, very strongly the need to bring that into a much more public discussion um, and the responsibility of therapy to include that in their understanding of why people feel shame. Um, and the way it can become toxic or in the way that you've articulated, Snake, and actually I agree, the important, uh, the essential necessity of it for us in our formation of identity. Um, 
but I think it's really, I think it's a key thing in the area that shame is experienced in different ways for, for a number of different reasons. And autism, Asperger's, neurodiversity, I think that people are hugely more vulnerable to experiencing shame, not being right. That line, too, I think is important in that my own experience, whenever I've done a deep dive into my own emotional issues, the emotion that I feel coming out of that feels very much like shame. For years, I thought it was shame. Why do I feel shame? And it comes up with such force in moments like that. Come to realize I was incredibly vulnerable. I was looking at myself, I was revealing emotional parts inside me that are normally private. It wasn't shame I was feeling, it was vulnerability that I was feeling. And the two oftentimes look similar. And so being able to discern those two emotions in a better way inside myself was very helpful. If I came off of a piece of work like that, feeling shame and judging myself, it didn't work quite so well. If I came off and said I was very honest and vulnerable, it was something I could feel pride about. So there's a couple different ways that can cut. Let me, uh, let me just pick up on this. There's a really interesting question based on the conversation that's being had by a, a very dear friend of mine, Sharina. Hi, Sharina. So Sharina is asking, what do the guest speakers have to say about the way in which shame interacts with gender? I ask, as it seems to me, that shame is only used in relation to women as a way of control. Hmm. <clears throat> I think that operates across genders, quite frankly. Uh, uh, the ability to use shame as a weapon, particularly in relationship, uh, is, is pretty common on both sides of male or female. But I, I would agree it's a powerful tool for control to shame someone or to cast question on their motives, their, their very self. That's a powerful weapon to wield. So it does, in a way, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on. It's the idea that you break the spirit of the child by shaming them. That's the mm. way you control them. And I, I happen to agree with you. I don't think this is gender-specific in any way. Um, how, however, I, I, I think there is something that Karina is saying, which because women or girls are encouraged to express feelings and emotions in a very different way that boys are not encouraged to, there is something to be said about, certainly from my experience, how women are much more comfortable sharing their vulnerabilities in a way that men are not able to do that. And I wonder whether, you know, there's something to be said about that. And I don't want to get into the gender specifics of it. And I don't want to get into the stereotypes or the stereotypical aspects of it. But, you know, my, my, my direct experience is that the closer we are to our feelings and emotions, and the safer we feel in being able to communicate and express them without the fear of being humiliated or shamed or even um, being told off can be very, very liberating. And, you know, based on what both you and Chris are saying, 
um, I, I have to support that because it does take courage. It does take huge risks because we don't know. I have no idea how people might respond to my level of vulnerability or my level of authenticity or even honesty. I think it bears noting too that, you know, to go on an exploration like this, we're suggesting you go on an exploration to, to find out how shame is wired into your life. That's risky stuff. And most people respond with, I'm never going to open that box. If I open that box, I'll never get it closed again. Fact is, you live inside that box. It's familiar. One of the big myths around doing this type of discovery work is that you're going to discover something that completely ambushes your life. No, you're curious because it exists in your life. How you interpret it and whether you interpret it accurately, that is the work. There's a, did you want to comment on that, Chris, or can I go to some rather interesting questions? No, I, I'm just on a stuck record. I keep, I mean, that's a brilliant <laughs> summary. Of, it, it goes to the core of this whole workshop. Um, but I, but I, I do think shame is baked into the human experience, and we experience it for different reasons. I think we're also hardwired in a particular way, and we different ways in which we all, we're all unique. We're all individuals and our parents and their parents and so on and so forth. It's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's part of being human. And what you were just saying, Snake, is the understanding, the recognition. And I think it was so such a good thing to highlight about vulnerability and it's to disentangle vulnerability from shame and to be able to be vulnerable without it being immediately associated with shame. That they 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 exist in uh, together and separate, but to to be able to understand that, uh, what's the purpose of therapy? It's both to illuminate, give understanding, but to to inspire people to be curious about who they are, to look at themselves with interest and curiosity, and a and a sense that what's going to emerge out of it is positive. I mean, you know, crying, being distressed. It, it doesn't feel good. That's not nice to feel. Um, but we but we know that if we f express it, there is something that in in the expression of it changes some of it, um, brings a, a different energy to it. Um, there was something else, but I've forgotten. I'll come back to it. There's a culture we've been taught to suppress emotions. They're inconvenient push them back in. And some of them rightly so. Uh, rage and violence, uh, those things need a good strong leash on them. But for the most part, our emotions really are meant to inform. My head left to its own device makes very logical decisions, but not necessarily ones that are good. If my heart's engaged in that, if my emotions are saying, yeah, this is the right thing to do, I feel far more confident. So it's a matter of emotion and intellect no longer being adversaries, rather being allies in making informed choice. I mean, one of the things that I've in, in being involved in the charity is coming into contact with student doctors and the first time in my life, inevitably, 
that I'm not on the same page as they are. They're so much further ahead in understanding and discussion and talking about emotions. But what I also saw was that also brings its own tyranny of perfectionism to be the best at expressing their emotions, the most articulate, the most able to navigate life challenges in a, in a wise, mature way. It, 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 there's also a, an attention that's needed to not, for that not to become the next version of perfectionism and shame. Mm-hmm. So here's the question. Um, this is from Karen, which I think is, is, is that okay to move on, Snake? Yes. Okay, cool. So here's an interesting question from Karen Lawrence. Thank you, Karen. So Karen says, I work as a sex addiction therapist. Can you be addicted to shame? There is a question. I think if shame is normalized, then it becomes something that you're familiar with and it has its own, and it's, you know, it's it's complex, but it has its own comfort. It has its own familiarity. You know where you stand in a way. Um, and I suppose that could you can be compelled, drawn. The undertow of that could easily become a seen as addictive. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, if not addictive, certainly habitual. Uh, a status quo of psychological presence, so to speak. Um, I, I see a lot of unraveling to be done too between trauma recovery and shame because oftentimes serious trauma is linked in various different ways to shame people who experience extraordinary trauma as children tend to carry it forward oftentimes as self-judgment or fear or suspicion of others or countless different ways but there's always this niggling sort of thing that maybe you deserve the abuse or maybe you didn't that can help set down a pattern of behavior of being that is unhealthy, that could be shameful. So the ability to reconcile the trauma that all of us have suffered to very degrees to bevel judgment for traumatic events is a critical part. And that certainly can be a shame generator as well. Uh, With sex addiction, and particularly right now, uh, with younger men, pornography is a huge issue in terms it reaches in a bunch of different areas and is largely undiscussed. And uh, that's shame cultural shame, covering up a really big issue. So I I think they are all related in that way. And shame, yes, can become a way of living uh, that almost draws negative experience or trauma to you. You're looking for it almost. So I, I find this is a really fascinating question because I think about the work of Gabor Mate, who is, uh, you know, his area of speciality is ADHD as well as addiction. And what he says about addiction, he says that addiction is a combination of shame and stress. 
So when shame and stress collide, it creates an addiction. An addiction from his perspective is a way of self-soothing. But of course, it's a lot more sinister than that. So, you know, Karen, when, when you um, talk, uh, ask the question, what comes to mind is, is the addiction to shame or is the addiction to suffering? And of course, um, it's the shame that creates the suffering and it's the suffering that then perpetuates the shame. And, you know, this is, a, this is a, a subject that's very close to my heart within the context of shame and, of course, within the context of anger. So when people act out their anger, they end up feeling the shame and they end up feeling the remorse, unless, of course, they are so sociopath or a psychopath. Um, but once the remorse sets in, that hopefully is the transformative moment. But from a statistical point of view in the work that I do, People will act out their anger, they'll feel the shame and the remorse, and then what will happen is that we're talking statistics here, anything between two and a half to three months, they'll be on their best behavior because in many ways they're in the dog box and they're being monitored. Then they act out again, and then, of course, they're having to deal with the shame and the remorse. So there is something to be said that on some level it's not that shame is the addiction, but suffering might be the addiction. And I'm, I'm also curious to, to get a response from yourself and Chris, if you have a response. Uh, Snake? Yeah, I, I, I kind of rest on the notion that it becomes a, a way of being uh, and therefore comforting because it's familiar. Um, uh, one of the links that I discovered years ago in terms of particularly doing trauma reconciliation is you know, a trauma response largely is a reinforced neural pattern. And uh, it, if that neural pathway is seen basically as a well-worn path, having shame reinforced or reinforcing shame yourself strengthens that neural pattern and affects the brain chemistry as well. So it seems like almost a parlor trick or a dismissal of, well, stop thinking about the trauma. It's not that simple. But in terms of our brain chemistry and our brain wiring, what we reinforce becomes our reality. And so if we're brought up in an environment that's full of shame and carry it forward into our adult life, chances are those neural pathways are going to be really strong and reinforced. I was just thinking about um, clients that I have who, you know, degrees of depression clinical depression and how much shame is part of the experience mm. um, and just trying to navigate um, the exploration of the things that, that have, that have been the catalyst or the triggers for the shame um, while holding somebody who, like I was saying earlier, uh, even in acknowledging shame becomes such an overwhelming experience. Mm. And how much at times it's okay to look at shame and at other times you need to come at some of the wounds, some of the consequences of it without firstly looking at shame. 
that you bring somebody or all the spaces available to approach something that is so devastating even to acknowledge um, different ways. And in fact, I'd be interested, Snake, in what, what your thoughts are about that in terms of some of the ways you would approach uh, um, issues around shame, but you just sense, you know, that talking at it, talking about it directly is not the way to go. How would you, how, what are the different ways in which you would approach shame? You know, my personal favorite is in a communal setting, in a group, mm. uh, yeah. rather than one. Um, I've found that to be the most effective. And uh, trauma researchers recently uh, are really falling into line with the notion that Trauma recovery is both an individual experience and a communal experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really support that notion. And I'm linking trauma and shame closely together here, but I think the same dynamic exists with shame. Is one-on-one, -on -one, you can accomplish certain things. In a communal group where people are supportive and there to witness, it's a whole nother quality of enlightenment, if you will, that's possible within a communal setting. If you look at trauma recovery as being ancient, it's where theater came from. It's where ritual came from. People came together to process what they didn't understand. And to a certain degree in our modern day culture, we've made that easier through Zoom and more difficult through isolation and COVID. So it's a pregnant time right now to be doing this type of work. I mean, one of the consequences of shame as I, that I see, understand, I've experienced is, is literally isolation. Yeah. It yeah. seems by its very nature to bring a sense of isolation into being. Yeah. Uh, the consequence, and so that sense of community of shared experience, but for nature pushes back against the isolation. Over the years, I've heard some heartrending stories, terrible stories of abuse and violence and that. And I've seen people look up at the circle and go, well, didn't that happen to everybody? Mm -hmm. No, it didn't. That's an extraordinary story. Are you kidding me? But Looking at the world out of our own eyes, all we've got to relate to is what we experienced. And for some, it's phenomenally dramatic. And for others, they might go through the same thing and not be touched one bit. Uh, it's so deeply individual. Yeah. I, I want to just pick up on, on, on what's being, uh, the, the question that's being explored, which is... Um, from my from my direct experience, just like you, Snake, I, I do have to agree that it needs to be a communal process. And the reason I suggest that is because the importance of whether it's group therapy or um, any kind of personal development workshop, if a person feels safe in that group, that's when they'll come out and take risks and be vulnerable and express whatever they they yearn to express, which they've been holding back for years and years and years. So I think safety is the fundamental component here. 
the more safe I feel within the context of a small group or a large group, the more risks I'll take because there are other people who are taking the, those risks. So there's something to be said about it being a permission-giving process. And in that permission-giving process, when you see other people being vulnerable, they're not shamed or humiliated or even told off, it gives me the courage to take the kind of risks that I never thought I'd be able to take. You know, recently I was watching this fantastic, very brief um, documentary on the polyvagal nerve by Stephen Porges. He's, in fact, it was his son who did the presentation. And at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about trauma, um, everyone who experiences trauma, depending on the extremities of it, feel incredibly unsafe in the world. And one of the healing components is about how do we create our own safety? And one of the ways that we can do that is in group therapy, psychotherapy, group work, and of course, uh, general personal development programs. And by being able to take those risks and recover from those risks, we recover those parts of ourselves that we are ashamed about. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh. Sorry, how much time have we got, Mike? When are we? Uh, just, to, just to be aware, um, everybody, we didn't put a time to this. We just said it starts at 4 p.m., so we'd see how far we go before it's... I, I'm just... I'm, there's quite a few questions, I'd be because I couldn't read it, but someone said started to talk about if human beings or something about being in, baked in. I, was, I couldn't read the rest of it, so I was really interested to know what that question was. Uh, but there's also some other really interesting questions that have been fascinating questions. Yeah. Do you, do you want me to call? Do you want me to call out well, just just because I was partly just seeing how much time you've got. But but just going back to my role as a trustee in the charity for doctors is um, how we look at shame in a number of different ways on for, for the individual, for groups, for organisations, and the medical profession. Doctors are so vulnerable to perfectionism um, and the experience of shame that's huge the statistics of burnout suicide there's so much greater than society at large and to me there's a tangible and the, the, their sense of shame their sort of isolation going mm -hmm. inwards the way they cope with it and how that then impacts on the relationships they have with their patients with their colleagues just the the toxicity of it um of of uh, the need for doctors to to be able to uh, understand and explore and see how much their identity as doctors is is rooted in perfectionism um, and their vulnerability to shame. Um, so I just wanted to flag that up. Really, the doctors are a very particular group within society. And it's it's a very good example of seeing the very positive consequences for both doctors, but society, the country at large, um, to be able to understand shame much more. That there's a tangible sense of being liberated from certain versions of shame. And then we also have our own individual uh, journey around shame as well. Well, let, let me speak to that because as, as you probably know, um, well, you probably don't know, Chris, but... You know, we have a very high percentage of people who attend our programs who work for the NHS, whether they're doctors or nurses yeah. or administrative staff. And there's a very high percentage of doctors, including surgeons, who attend our programs. And I can tell you, every single one of them 
are not even aware that they suffer from shame. And, and keep in mind, I'm not necessarily talking about toxic shame. They, they, they're somewhere on the spectrum. But when I introduce the shame part of the program, they are quite shocked by recognizing, oh, my God, I absolutely get that. And often you'll see that with doctors, they tend to be overachievers, but very low self-esteemers. So they're very, very sensitive to being um, told off or criticized or shamed or blamed. So they're constantly, constantly covering their own backs. So that, that's, not, that's not uncommon at all. Um, so there is a, can I, are you okay about me asking, there's a couple more really interesting questions here. Yeah. And there's a, there's a fascinating, I mean, everything here is absolutely fascinating. Ronnie, I just want to um, come to the comment that you've made. You're back, Snake, yeah? Cool. Yeah. So Ronnie Turner, hi, Ronnie, says, um, you say shame is baked into the human experience. Yes. Is it, that re is it really true for all humans? How about races, tribes who have a more non-dualistic view of life? Great question, Ronnie. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no question that culture plays heavily into how shame anchors itself because certain things are permissible, accepted in cultures and not accepted in others. So I think you can't underestimate the cultural overlay that can trigger, exacerbate, increase shame in people. Because uh, to a certain degree, what we're talking about is our ability to relate and contribute to other human beings. We're guided by certain cultural guidelines along the way, and they vary across the world. Um, you know, you see that in so many different ways demonstrated. I look, you know, even in the United States, for being one country, it's diverse as can be in terms of what is acceptable in particular areas of the country and what's not. And it's the cultural agreements that people have made with one another around that. And it can certainly be cut across those. And a good example is I lived for a certain amount of time in Switzerland, and the Swiss would permit far more outrageous behavior from me because I was American than they would from one another as Swiss because of the social constraints. And I found that interesting, that I had more permission to act out or be outrageous than the Swiss had in their own country because of the projection that had been placed on me as an American. You know, of course he's rude. Of course He's across the line. He's American. And so it, it, it shifts from place to place culturally. You can't underestimate the cultural impact of shame as well. So I, I have a great story. And, you know, I'm not a huge storyteller, but I got a story for, for everybody. So I spent a lot of time in Africa with my girlfriend, Marie We both wildlife photographers. And a recent trip that we did to Kenya, we were at one of those Maasai warrior tribal communities where you go along as tourists and you watch their kind of traditional dance and, and milking of the, of the cows uh, and drinking of the blood, et cetera, et cetera, and buying the curios. Anyway, what we also do 
very often is invite our guests to bring gifts for the children because they don't have things like pens and pencils and rubbers and rulers and the kind of things that we have in the West. So one of the trips that we did recently, a woman brought an absolute massive bag of everything she possibly could for these kids. But what she wanted to do was to hand them out herself. And the tribal elder said, no, 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 don't do that. Let them rather queue up as opposed to just, you know, just handing it out like you would, you know, a bag of sweets for kids at a party in the West. And they insisted that she does that. And she said, no, she wants to do it her way. Anyway, all I can say to you, it was pandemonium. These kids were screaming and shouting and grappling for whatever they can possibly grab. And as I was watching them getting into this tussle and this fight to get whatever they can, I was noticing how the tribe didn't do anything about that. No parent came in and pulled their child out of the, you know, the inner circle and started to scream and shout or even smack them. They just simply watched this beautiful drama being played out. And it was, I was really quite touched by that because I've noticed that when I was a kid, of course, those are the kinds of things that parents did. They kind of spanked, they shamed, they humiliate their kids. But in this situation, the elders of the tribe, in fact, the whole community was there in a circle, just simply watching it unfold. And this poor woman, she felt, of course, so ashamed because she didn't listen to the wise elders that we have a particular structured way of doing that here. But I've spent a lot of time with tribal people, certainly in Africa, and the idea of shame and humiliation and guilt does not come into it. There's a very, very strict hierarchy and people follow the hierarchy. Now, I don't want to get into whether it's healthy or not healthy, whether it's good or bad. I think that the point I've made is a very valid point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to ask the question, too. How is, shame, uh, how is shame addressed in the culture you grew up in? I'm asking the whole crowd as an individual. Was shame acknowledged? Was it uh, uh, denied, uh, shoveled underneath? Um, I think most of us received very little coaching on the emotion of shame. But uh, because it is such a personal thing, we've all got a different impression of what it looks like. Well, is it, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, is it possible for people to join in the conversation? Well, there is a, there is a, Carol is, says she studied the Maasai tribe. I was wondering, Carol, if you wanted to say anything about that. And if you do, you're going to have to um, unmute yourself. We can even see you. Hi, Mike. Hi, everyone. Um, this was going back to many, many years ago when I grew up in South Africa. And um, I traveled uh, extensively around and uh, I'd spent some time. I didn't study them extensively, but I spent some time studying um, the Maasai tribe in my late teens and before I came over to, to the UK. And amongst other tribes, I found the Maasai tribe absolutely amazing, wonderful human beings, amazing people, just their culture. As you were talking, Mike, in terms of uh, just allowing the young the young children just to all the pandemonium that was going on and just allowing them to just do, do their thing. Um, I remember when I was in secondary school, we had to choose a tribe and we had to do um, quite a lot of research and studying um, of, of that tribe that we chose. And I chose the Messiah uh, tribe. And actually a couple of um, 
South African ladies that I knew very well who'd traveled through Africa and had spent time with the Maasai tribe. I spent a lot of time with them learning about the tribe. So I just, uh, it just resonated, that story just resonated with me. Um, just wonderful people. And in terms of culture, I think that um, when we think about, um, I think sometimes less is more. And when you, when you, when you, when I went to um, Morocco many years ago with work to to Morocco, I spent some time there. And again, like traveling through the villages um, and and doing some work and traveling the, um, with some of the people that live there. Again, you find. I suppose I didn't think of it in the same way as I do now because I'm obviously a lot older. But I just think that you don't see the same complexities around shame and some of these other emotions that exist in the Western world than you do in some parts of, I mean, I grew up in South Africa, so it's very different to the UK in terms of of how we express emotions and talk about our feelings. But I just didn't notice it as much when working there than, as I do here. And I think I've lived in this country now more than I did in South Africa. And I just find that it's something in the Western world, particularly in the UK, that I don't think emotions are really validated and accepted as much. We kind of brush things under the carpet and it's we feel this kind of embarrassment about expressing these feelings. And I think if we're teaching young people, you know, how to validate and accept emotions, they're not going to grow up having these massive issues, irrespective of whether they've been through traumatic um, events, especially, you know, COVID is very traumatic for a lot of young people. So it was just just something that resonated with me, Mike. I mean, I haven't probably studied them in the extent that, <laughs> that perhaps um, came across in the chat, but yeah. Cool. Thank you. No um, worries. There's, uh, did, did anyone want to comment on that? Because there's another interesting question, which I think is worthwhile addressing. Uh, just in terms of um, generations, because I think someone else put, posted up generational, I did, just anecdotally in my work, People that I'm seeing in their late teens, early, mid-20s, late 20s, they're much, much more uh, uh, um, have understanding, been educated, are interested from all from a number of different arenas around emotional health. It, it just seems to have been a surge. It doesn't mean that they're clearly, you know, because I'm seeing people that they don't have their challenges or issues, but they have a vocabulary that just seems distinctly different from later generations that uh, that I've worked with. Um, and I see that as very positive. I mean, the challenges are still there, but to have the vocabulary, to the stigma, the judgment is, is noticeably diminished that they're seeing a therapist. There's an interesting question by Carol again, actually. Um, I tell you, I'm going through these questions and I'm just seeing which one we've kind of more or less answered anyway. So just, just to be aware of that. But Carol, there's a question um, by you where you, you say, Mike, do you think DBT, DBT is dialectical, dialectical behavior therapy, is useful for teens who struggle with emotional dysregulation, particularly the emotion of anger? So I'm trained in DBT. It's one of the trainings that I have. So I'd, I'd just like to respond to that. I think it's far more effective for suicidality. I think it's fantastic for borderline personality disorders as well as depression. I'm, I'm not thinking that it's, it's as effective for anger. Um, and I'm just basing that on my own experience. Yeah. But having said that, it might be that another DBT trained therapist would say, well, actually, they've had a huge amount of success. Mm. A lot of people that I work with have been through DBT and then come to our organization to participate in anger management programs. Mm. 
just to reinforce what I said, very effective for suicidality, borderline personality, and chronic depression. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. The reason why I actually asked is because um, uh, CAMS, I live in Hertfordshire, and CAMS have recently, um, as a therapy, obviously it was always offered for um, adults who were diagnosed with EUPD, but it has now been offered in the last two years to teens from as young as 13 who are displaying symptoms of EUPD. So it was just interesting that I just wanted to ask because some um I mean, I'm not trained in DBT myself, but I do um, mental health training and emotional well-being sessions. And we do touch on some DBT skills, but we don't go into it extensively because we're not trained in DBT. And it just seems that it, it, it kind of helps a lot of young people who may be already displaying those symptoms, um, which is why I asked the question. So thank you for clarifying. Your pleasure. Mm. Did anybody else want to respond to that? <clears throat> Sorry, anybody or me as well, snake? Well, well, the the panel. Um, no, I'm. I, I'm. I think it's very clear what's being said. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, there. Let's see. Uh, I think um, that maybe we can just at this point, those of you who still want to ask questions that I haven't covered here, um, maybe this is an opportunity to do that. Although I'm seeing. Um, one question by Sandra Leslie to everyone. Is there any relationship between shame and adoptees? And then David Oxley says adoptees, uh, adoptees will always, well, sorry, let me take it back. Adoptees will carry the mother's shame. Does any, would the panel like to speak to that? Yeah, that's a personal issue. I, uh, and, and a very complicated one. Uh, my wife was adopted as an infant and in the last couple of years uh, discovered and met a wide range of different family. And part of what she's carried over the years is the shame of not being wanted, of giving up for adoption, but also a deeper one of who, who am I? Nobody looks like me. Uh, there's no family resemblance anyplace. Uh, it's almost the, who is my mother anyway, uh, that carried a whole level of shame of insecurity in her not being able to identify with family members. So I think definitely shame can be an issue for adoptees. Part of it, the ungroundedness of what so many of us take for granted is I know what my dad and mom looked like and who they were. Uh, Many people don't. And it seems counterintuitive, but being vulnerable or feeling shame can be a response to that. I work with a lot of people who have been adopted. And, you know, I have this view they have every reason to be furious because of their own sense of abandonment and and rejection. But I've also worked with people who have been brought up in adopted families and they have been injected with a huge amount of love. You know, in the words of Brene Brown, where she talks about somebody who suffers from shame feels unworthy of love and belonging. And so I've seen both sides of that, um, that, that world. 
those who are fewest because of their abandonment and rejection, and those who are really happy that they've been adopted and they felt loved and held and contained and safe and safe. Mm -hmm. So there's something really interesting when we work with these kind of parallels. However, there is still this underlying anger that I find even those who would define themselves as having healthy self-esteem, but there is still this unconscious rage that they feel towards the parents who gave them up for adoption. And of course, the question is, well, how do we reconcile that in ourselves? Those are the kind of questions that I get from people. Yeah, I've, I've really been um, sort of t touched by what you said, Snake, about um, uh, vulnerability, um, dis distinguishing or beginning to disentangle vulnerability. And yet at the core of this is about vulnerability and just all the different themes, all the different ways people are listening or the way we've talked, how uh, shame is just part of our, our, our lives one way or another, whether it's in our role or uh, uh, sexuality or individual paths that we're on. But at core, it's like I feel much more, um, you know, in a positive sense, really, much more vulnerable, much more sense of my own vulnerability and a sadness about the shame that, that emerges and um, just a stronger connection to that. And at the same time, in feeling more vulnerable, it dilutes the shame. It, it does dilute it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, you know, go off in the weeds for a moment with this one, too. There's a lot of writing being done lately on epigenetics or the notion that we pass these things on from generation to generation to generation. And, you know, the jury's out in terms of how much science is involved in that. But it's interesting. And the example that I oftentimes use, as I mentioned before, my father lived as a closeted gay man. As a child, and him being my role model, I grew up with this unusual sense that somehow I needed to obscure or hide who I was. Now, he never overtly sent me that message. But by virtue of observing him live his life, and how he had a secret, even though I didn't know it, his behavior was always somewhat clandestine. And so I adopted a certain amount of energy around, there's something wrong with me, something I must hide, or I'll be abandoned or judged or whatever, that I could never wrap my head around because no one ever really gave me that message come to realize later that part of that, I'm sure, was just the energetic nature that my dad put out in the world that I observed and emulated. So I think this topic of shame can be extraordinarily subtle in terms of how it inserts itself into our lives and buried. Cool. So, look, we're already at 5.20. You know, we've left it open, but I'd be quite useful at this point is to just open up the conversation uh, to whoever might want to either ask questions. Um, if we've missed your question out, you might want to add a question um, um, or, you know, identify another question, or you might want to make comments 
from your own perspective about this thing called shame. Now, having said all of that, shame, uh, um, Snake and myself are going to be delivering a four-week program on the power of the, the power, what, the tyranny of perfection. I was just about to say the power of vulnerability, the tyranny of perfection. And an email will go out on Monday anyway for that four-week program. Um, and if you want to know more about it, I'll, I'll hang back afterwards and you can ask me questions about that. So at this point, are there any questions? Um, you know, you can you can unmute yourself and if you want us to see you, great. Otherwise, you can hide behind the shadows. Could I ask Chris a question, please, Mike? You don't need my perfection. <laughs> Um, hi, Chris. Um, very hey. early. Hi there. Um, very early on, I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion, by the way. And um, very early on, you mentioned about um, shame um, often being triggered by perhaps external circumstances or in our environment or things that we've been through maybe as young, you know, when we were younger in terms of trauma or whatever it might be. Do you also feel that shame can come from your own choices that you've made in your life? So perhaps I'm just giving an example. Perhaps if you've stayed in an abusive relationship for years and your children have suffered, um, that will obviously, you will carry shame because you can see obviously the mm -hmm. outcome. So don't you think that shame can also come from our own wrongdoing as humans and our own choices as well that we make? No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I suppose my immediate response to that is one of uh, a care and kindness to, to someone who's experiencing shame in that way, mm. that you have to put it in the context of the, the um, you know, just the environment, the history. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, I mean, it's slightly separate, but I was, it, I, I, I hadn't thought of a memory or a memory just came to mind that I hadn't thought of for years where I was, was I think the sort of Easter where all the kids came together and stuff. And I was, be, I was behind a group of them with my bike and my mother was asking me to, was saying, come, come, come. And I had no idea what was happening. Um, but there was a teacher with the kids who then threw sweets and they all turned and fell over me with my bike and my mother was mortified. She was shamed. And in turn, I was, I, I had no, you know, I hadn't done it deliberately. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to make this happen. But my association of my sense of self through what she was, I was about six, what she was experiencing. And so, you know, in therapy, you know, in my own therapy, that would be the thing that we would look at. That would be the trauma but as I've got older, it's also about who my mother was, the girl she was, being brought up by Victorian parents, disappointed in her, how she managed and navigated and her own genuine sense of shame, but how it became my shame. Mm. So I think all of it, in, you know, uh, a lot of this is about looking at our own experiences in a number of different ways with curiosity, but care and kindness. Mm. Yeah, no, that's I don't know yeah, if that absolutely. I don't know yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, I want. I wonder if someone on the panel can just um, respond to a question that wasn't. It wasn't my question. It was a question by somebody else, uh, um, another attendee, um, asking about. Because um, I'd be interested in to, to find out about this, and I'm sure other people would. How do you support a teen or young person recovering or dealing with shame? How could you support a young person? You know, I think one of the ways to do that is. Uh, uh, through what I broadly call education. But one of the things that was really helpful for me was to have acknowledged that there's a small part of me and a large part of me. 
There's a very small, petty man and a courageous man. The, the paradox in life is incredibly important to acknowledge. Is one of the shame busters that has worked well for me and for many is the notion that, yeah, everybody's got screwed up thoughts from time to time. Everybody comes up short from time to time. And they achieve great things from time to time, but it's a polarity and that it's not about perfection. I think supporting young people in particular, there's a particular mold that they're supposed to come out of. That's their assumption. They're looking for a blueprint. I, I'm not going to hand them a blueprint, but I will hand them a better understanding of the polarity that life is. We're going to be small sometimes and we're going to be large sometimes. Both are okay. It's being human. And my, my response to that is, um, certainly when I work with young people, is that I'm very supportive of helping them to identify what their primary needs are. So when I talk about primary needs, I'm talking about to feel valued and appreciated and accepted and respected. And to find a way of being able to articulate and express those needs, even though they might be rejected or they might be told off, is to find the courage to keep persisting. Um, that's part of what it means to be a child or even a teenager, is that our parental figures or primary carers or adults, whether they're educationalists or not, need to be able to help us to articulate what it is that what we what it is that we need, not what it is, is that what we want, but what it is that we need. And as a young person's self-esteem increases, uh, extraordinary things happen. And I, I know young people who have healthy self-esteem, they've been loved unconditionally and their parents have been able to encourage them to communicate and express their needs. And they are very, very different to a lot of young people that I work with who are suffering from toxic shame and humiliation, of course. So that, that would be my way into that, giving them a language, giving them a narrative, not only for their feelings, but also for their needs. Um, I mean, I, I, I kind of bang on about it a bit, but, but I mean, obviously there needs to be more resources into CAMS uh, and general sort of resources for mental health for, for younger people. But I, I, I really do think that a significant number of teenagers, young people, as well as environmental factors, which in some ways are connected to what I'm going to say anyway, is around Asperger's and autism. I really, really do think there is a gray area where a huge amount of what is happening around mental health for young people is undiagnosed, uh, nuanced versions of autism or Asperger's. And if that's not picked up and recognized, then it almost becomes another form of abuse for those kids because they're also already struggling with identity and sense of self and fragmented understanding and processing of things which is bad, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious. It's going to emerge as mental health issues. Cool, thank you. We're, we're, we are probably coming close to the end now. Is there anybody else that might have another question, a comment, a thought, a feeling, et cetera, et cetera? There, there, I think there were some questions about the antidote. Uh, Dr. Philip Mac. Gowen, did you want to ask a question? Uh, if you do, yes. get <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, I just wanted, as a as a medical doctor that uh, uh, plays a part now in helping uh, other doctors through mental health issues, I found that that sense of shame and guilt that they're not good enough for the profession is very, very pervasive and and almost takes over their entire life that they actually make their situation much worse by um, continuing with this. And I found it very difficult to get, maybe it's just the stage of their their, their journey and their illness. Um, I found it very difficult to get them out of that. It's almost as though they're obsessed and they want to stay in that state of um, guilt, uh, but it makes their whole situation worse and then they can end up in trouble with regulators and, and things like that. So uh, I just wanted to um, ask, uh, um, are there any particular methods of, of trying to get uh, younger people to to engage and, and, and uh, to not in, be in that negative cycle? That's a complicated one. And, you know, part of what comes up for me is that I always put tremendous projections on doctors as being able to solve anything that might go wrong with me. That's a huge pedestal to place someone on. And, you know, it wasn't until later in life that I realized that medicine's an art. It's not something that has an answer to everything was able to pull that projection back from the doctor. So part of it with doctors is understanding that they're living not only under life and death situations oftentimes, but also under the projection of everyone that people come to them vulnerable and their uh, function is to ease the pain. If they're not able to ease it or cure it, it's a failure. That whole line of reasoning leads to a lot of trouble. And I see a lot of doctors suffer from that. Um, there's an art to medicine, not just the science. And we need to recognize that about the doctors, and the doctors need to recognize that about themselves. Thank you. Do, uh, do, 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 I mean, maybe you already know about you, okay, Doc, but do. Um, yes. Do um do look at it and come we we there's I mean part of the thing about shame and about isolation and going inwards but part of the 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 um a clear thing that we wanted to create from the charity was was community so we have something called the huddle which is one of you know it's one of the words you'll use within the, the medical profession um uh, as as a space to come on Wednesday evenings just to talk, listen, share your experiences. Not, it's not a therapy group. Um, and that's, that's building quite rapidly. And the need, just the need to be able to, first of all, for it to be acknowledged. And then people coming on to the huddle, getting onto the webinars, just like dry sponges, just so in need of, of being part of a conversation, being able to share their story, listen, understand, be educated. So, so do do uh, uh, get uh, connected with you, okay, Doc? Yeah, I, I, I have um, directed some uh, people to that the huddle. Um, I didn't want to take up this, some some of the numbers in the sessions because I'm in a relatively good place at the minute. But I, I now see the benefit of going on there and talking Absolutely. amongst everyone. Absolutely.
Thank you. Brilliant, brilliant. Bit see you there then. Thanks. Yes, see you Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. I just want to I just want to reinforce what's being said, but um, you've helped me to understand something which I think is fundamental in you know in your industry, um, which is as I've already said, virtually every single one of our programmers will always have a doctor or somebody from the NHS. In fact, one of the groups that I'm delivering at the moment, there are actually quite a few doctors, believe it or not. But you know, one of the things that I'm most struck by is they don't act out in the workplace. They suck it in in the workplace and they take it home and they dump it at home. And those who do act it out in the workplace, of course, they're usually sent to our programs because, you know, they have to find a way of dealing with uh, their anger. They have to find a way of managing the anger. But a lot of the people that we work with, a lot of doctors we work with, they usually act out at home. So not only are they feeling the, the, the stress of working in that environment, with those levels of stress and anxiety and not feeling supported, but of course, when they go home, they're also isolated and they feel alone. So it's a massive problem, as you know. And thank God, a charity like the one that Chris is mentioning actually exists. I think it's fundamental. So uh, thank you for the question. Uh, folks, uh, we're coming, probably coming to the end of our time. I know, Ronnie, you had a, an, a question. Uh, do, you, do you want me to read the question out, or are you happy to ask the question? Um, it, it wasn't really a question. It was a, a, just a, a kind of final comment listening to this great discussion. Um, th- th- just my comment was about surely this is about sort of somehow climbing down from perfectionism is, is crucial to, to, to beginning to ch- you know, change the cycle and practicing self-acceptance and happy imperfectionism um, and modelling that to our children and young people. Um, and, you know, that, of course, that's easy to say, but very, very difficult if we're suffering from shame ourselves, toxic shame. Um, however, the, you know, it just seems to me that the, the beginning of it surely would be in uh, normalising the, um, the sort of expression of the full spectrum of our feelings, normalising that. Uh, making it okay to feel this, to feel that, to feel happy, to feel sad, to feel shit, to feel shame, you know, and um, and doing that creatively um, would be a good place to start. Yeah, let me let me speak to that very briefly. So, you know, when at the beginning of the presentation I spoke about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I've made a mistake. Shame is that I am a mistake. And I think one of the what would have been really useful for me as a child is every time I made a mistake was not to be shamed and humiliated and ridiculed. Because, of course, when I made those mistakes, I did whatever I could to stop making those mistakes. So I would, I would do whatever I can to achieve perfection, which was impossible. That's why the title of the presentation is called The Tyranny. I've been tyrannized by perfection. And part of my journey over a period of six years, my mantra, not my journey, my mantra was, Michael, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to mess up. This is part of the human condition. That was the first mantra. Then I had another mantra, which was, it's none of my business what other people think of me. Because I was so consumed, so much of my self-esteem was determined by getting the validation and the acknowledgement and the positive strokes from outside of myself. And so what I had to train myself to do was to remind myself it's none of my business what they think of me. It's their business. My business is my business. Their business is their business. The other issue that I had 
uh, suffering from toxic shame was I would take absolutely everything personally and I'd make it about me, even if it wasn't about me. So there's something very fundamental in, from a very young age, being reminded it is okay to make mistakes. It is okay to take risks. It is okay to get things wrong. And that in itself, you know, I only discovered that as an adult, but that was my, my way of kind of climbing out of the labyrinth or the hole I dug myself into. Anyone else want to ask a question? Uh, thoughts or feelings? Uh, we have something from Cameron over here. Uh, Cameron, do you want to you want to rather ask the question or do you want to um, comment on that? Yeah, I can do. Um, no, it's just what Spike was saying earlier about um, his projection onto the doctors, assuming um, that they can uh, do anything if you like, uh, so the pressure puts on them. But whether that projection is a simple projection or it's uh, coming from his own personal shame, uh, assuming his inadequacy and everyone else is um, far more able. It's mm. sort of something that ran, uh, rang inside me when he was saying that. Yeah, I think it could be or a combination of both to a certain degree. Um, you know, it strikes me too how vulnerability fits into all this because that projection that I put on doctors came from a place of being ill and needing remedy. And I put a lot of faith in the fact that someone was going to be able to fix it. Whether it was realistic or not, the amount I put into it. But uh, I, again, it was coming from a place of extreme vulnerability and looking for a fix that I was willing to hand that projection to someone better skilled, more talented, more educated than me to solve what I couldn't solve. Um, I, I, I wanna just note too, talking about, yeah, absolutely all motions need to be explored in different ways. And the foolish thing about it is, is if we really can push them away, you know what you're feeling inside. You might not have words for it or an identity to it, but you push it back, it just grows larger. So that actual expression of emotion of what we're feeling is incredibly important. And I saw it and Chris, when you talked about feeling vulnerable, just ramping into this discussion, it showed on your face. And there's a part of us as human beings that picked that up. You became safe in that place by being willing to show your vulnerability. And it showed on your face. We need to do much more in order to come together as human beings and educate one another. So... So good job, Chris. <laughs> but it is it is in real time. I mean, I came at this. I mean, it's it's been a fantastic experience. It's been very, it's just been very very good. Um, but but not just just listening to you guys, but just the way I've come to to engage with it and the experience while we've all been together. Um, and just it, so the, there's a conversation about 
how do we address shame, etc. You know, that's the reason why we've come together. But just literally in real time, for me, this is a way that addresses, engages our in a, in a in a in a from a place of curiosity and and ultimately a positive engagement with it. So for me, it's been great. It's been really really good. Cool. So are there any more questions that need to be asked, comments that need to be made, or can we start to wind down? I hope that uh, everyone's enjoyed this. Um, I certainly find the subject absolutely fascinating and incredibly interesting. Uh, anyone else? No? So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for your wisdom and, in, and your, your experience. Um, and as you know, I've known you a long time and we've run some men's groups together. And so we have a, we have a history. And then, of course, Snake, you know, the wise old man of the group. I, I love listening to you, as you already know. It's fantastic to do this journey with you. And thanks very much for being on the panel. And, of course, everybody else, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we will send you a link to the recording. And you might want to share that with family and friends. And also, if you are interested in the actual workshop that we'll be delivering we'll send out that information i think it'll probably be on monday and um, if you'd like to join us that'll be fantastic otherwise you might also know people who could be interested in uh, uh, this particular program that we're delivering on so we're 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 there did you want to say anything else before we finish snake and chris you know i always like to leave them laughing and so i'll, I'll give that a try uh I'm real fond of sheepdogs, and I've trained many of them over the years. And a sheepdog needs a job. Emotions are a lot like that. It isn't about abandoning or casting off the emotions we have. It's about finding that dog a job. And so even with shame, there's got to be a job for it someplace. Find the job for the dog. So that's what I got. Thank you very much. I, th I think that we're good. I think that's the ending. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you all. Stay tuned. We've got lots of interesting stuff coming up this year, and hopefully you'll attend more of our events. And uh, please spread the message. I'd appreciate that. Adios. See you, everybody. That was Mike Fisher, Craig Snake Bloomstrand and Chris Cherry discussing the subject of shame. If you'd like to examine your feelings around this topic further and learn techniques to combat feelings of toxic shame, why don't you join our Tyranny of Perfection Zoom workshop series starting Saturday, March the 6th at 2.30pm and held remotely via Zoom. Now, there is a fee, but if you need to spread the payments, you can do so through PayLater or PayPal, which you can now do for any of BAM's courses. Find all the details over in the courses section of our website, angermanage.co.uk. You've been listening to the Wisdom Track from the British Association of Anger Management, or BAM for short. Our next podcast concerns mental health in the time of COVID-19 and it's at 4pm on Saturday the 20th of March. Hope to see you there.